All right, we're in John chapter 6. John chapter 6. And the New Testament begins with Matthew, then Mark, then Luke, and then the Gospel of John. Chapter 6, starting in verse 22. We will read through verse 30. When you're there, please stand. It is our tradition to stand for the reading of God's Word. The crowd on which this speaks is the crowd that Jesus had fed the loaves and the fishes to. The next day, the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except the one that Jesus, that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. There came some other boats from Tiberias near the place where they had ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered them like he usually does, really doesn't answer the question. He gets to the heart of the matter. Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the sign, but because you ate the bread and was filled. Do not work for food that perishes, but for food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him the Father has set his seal. Therefore, they said to him, what shall we do so that we may do the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, what then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? You may be seated. Now, You'll have to forgive me. And it's not condemning when I say this, but I say it to address the crowd that is here, or the people that are here on Wednesdays. Um, there's significant repetition of words in this parochia. It's called a parochia, passage of Scripture. Okay? Um, Jesus actually mentions heaven ten times in this chapter. Okay, from here down, from the stories we've gone into. Bread, 15 times. And then... Food in general, or manna, another six times. His own flesh, six times. He says, I am the bread, three times. He says that he has come down five times. Okay? Then if you add come down, now you have to add the comes down, present tense. He does that another five times. Okay? I will raise them up. We'll figure out who that is in, a, in a, next week probably, four times. And he uses that truly, truly, or the amen, amen, four times in this chapter. Now, I had to decide where, because I can't do the whole chapter in one Sunday message, okay? So I had to decide where to, to break this off and to form each message. But really, that's hard to do because Jesus using these words, it connects to the next section, which he uses again. It connects to the next, what we would say is section of the way I have to break it out. Okay, so but just by choice, I have to take a place to to break that off so we can don't have to sit here till tomorrow um, because I would get hungry by then uh, to, to cover the whole chapter. But but I want you to understand it's not disconnected. Of course, it's not disconnected from the previous part of the chapter. Because we begin the next day. What next day? 
All right? And if you recall, Jesus has crossed the uh, Sea of Galilee over near Bethsaida, near the Golan Heights, right? There, there's a great crowd that follows him across uh, from the other side, Capernaum, Tiberias. Uh, there he has a young fellow with loaves and fishes, and he feeds the twenty to 25,000 adults, right? Because it was getting late. And then, it, then Jesus sends the disciples in a boat to go back across. He goes up to the mountain to pray. In the meantime, it gets dark. Now, what all these people did that night, I don't know. Now, for us, and our idea, the idea of just being out somewhere and taking your coat off and using it for a pillow or a blanket seems a little far, but it wasn't so much in those days. When you traveled, a lot of people couldn't afford what they would say is an inn or a place to stay if you didn't have family uh, in that area. You just sort of stuck a campfire out and on the ground you went. So I would imagine many of these people stuff this way, enough to know that they saw the disciples leave the night before in a boat without Jesus on it. So the next day they get up and go, now wait a minute, we know the boat left, Jesus wasn't on it, where's Jesus? They, they don't know that during the night Jesus had walked out on the water and met the boat, and then that the boat was teleported into Capernaum. They don't know that. They just know that, wait a minute, Jesus should be here because we saw the boat leave. So as the morning progresses, boats traveling across along that shoreline from Tiberias, which would actually be Magdala, where Mary Magdalene was from, to, I'm going to turn around because it really goes this way, from Tiberias to Magdala, okay, to Capernaum, over here in the Bethsaida, over here to where the Golan Heights are, okay, and the Jordan River comes in at the top. Okay, so they're going to cross in these boats over to Capernaum, and you have to ask why Capernaum. So if the back app back there has these pictures work for you, I hope they do. This is just a small portion of Capernaum today. One third of it, the Eastern Orthodox Church, it was there, the Eastern Orthodox Church uh, has a basilica that covers one third of the land that we might know as Capernaum. It was a city of... 2,000 people about in Christ's day. It was where Peter lived. So you see uh, that round building? That's a church built over Peter's house. So it's actually suspended over it like this, so underneath it there are, there are remains. Now Jesus lived there, or Peter lived there with his mother-in-law and his brother Andrew, Luke chapter 4. Jesus moved to Capernaum Matthew 4, after the death of John the Baptist, many people think yeah, that's where he went, is to live there, because it was a multi-room, multi-facility building, okay? Somewhere around the first century, click to the next one, I don't remember what the next one, so you can see that up close, so you can see how it's built over the top, I'm assuming these are also going out over the live feed, built over the top, that, that is a Franciscan, Catholic Franciscan church, because they bought this land, I think in 1894, from Bedouins at the time, okay? Next picture, please. So in the church, that neat looking, it's a sort of neat looking, they have a glass floor, so you can look down through the various layers, which I'll talk about in a minute, down into where Peter's house was. Next one, please. Okay, so you can sort of see there's various layers along the way, all right? And so they've discovered, one of the reasons they're pretty sure this is the site, because there's a lady that traveled around in the 390s and talks about a church being there. 
and this type of church, and they have found the remains of that there, which you'll see, I hopefully, in a moment, okay? And as they work the layers down, they find the base house. I'll put it that way. But somewhere in the first century, by the coins they find that have fallen in the cracks and that kind of thing in pottery, this particular house began all of a sudden somewhere in that first century was plastered with white plaster. No, that don't happen. The area around here is black basalt, you know, volcanic black rock, all right? So they get down there, they see things were built out of that, and we'll talk about the synagogue in a minute. Why would this house be plastered, a fisherman's house? And they notice they, the change in the things they find. They don't find household goods. They found large storage jars, okay, and flask of oil. Large storage jars, probably for ceremonial cleansing, like we talked about at the wedding of Cana, that they used to baptize a bride, in a sense, baptize cleanser before. All right? Um, so we got to realize that Matthew lived in Capernaum. That's where he had his tax booth. All right? And his house was there. After he gets called, Jesus calls him, he goes to the house, and that's where Jesus is accused of meeting with tax collectors, publican sinners. All right? If you were to travel from Egypt to Damascus, Syria, at a point which I showed you this city some time ago, but, but you would travel, and then you'd come over to the Sea of Galilee, the Lake of Gennesaret, and then travel up from there to Damascus. Guess what town you went through? Great place to put up a toll booth if you're a tax collector. And history teaches us that the fishermen were taxed about 30 to 40% of their catch. So you see why they didn't like tax collectors. 30%, 40% of your fish you come in, all right? Matthew, or the tax collector, would take that much of, and then the toll for traveling this, that's where Matthew's tax booth was, okay? Um, it's called the Way by the Sea is the name of that road. In the Old Testament, it was the Way of the Philistines because you'd come down and go over to the Mediterranean. That's where the Philistines lived, it is in this house, by the way, that they believed the guy, when they cut the hole in the roof and lowered the paralytic down in Peter's house, okay, um, the synagogue. Let's see if we can get to the... Okay, that would be, before they put the church over the top, there was a Byzantine church somewhere around three to 400, somewhere in there, because this lady saw it in the 390s, was this octagon church built on top of it. So they have to go down through the layers... To see that next one, please. I know that's small. So this is an artist's rendition of a church or the change they made and pre-destructed, but turned it into a meeting place. The perimeter of that is 122 meters. 122 yards, I'll guess. I'll call it that for when I can convert to that. Okay, so they noticed that the building was contained in a place where more public meeting oriented. We talked about that. Next one, please. And so this would be an artist rendition of Peter's house. Now, there's multiple, I'll say, houses here. There's the one main room is about 18 or 19 by 21. That's about the size of my family room. And then these various other, so maybe Andrew, let's say, lived in one section, you know, with his family. And Peter, maybe, maybe there, and they shared the big room. They found five ovens in the courtyard. That's cooking a lot of bread, folk. So that's why they're pretty sure multiple families lived in Peter's house, and many think Jesus was living there as well. 
Okay, now can we, do we have the synagogue yet? Yeah, okay, so that's the reason. Now what you're seeing there, all right, is a third century synagogue, but it's built on the basalt foundation, which wasn't quite square, by the way, so it wasn't just today we have that problem. Um, and so you, you can actually, and there's a sign that actually says there, you know, this, this was built later, this, it was called the white synagogue because it was white limestone that had to be imported from somewhere but it's built up on this same basalt so we know the size of it it's about 30 by 60 if i remember rightly at 30 by 80 okay and there's go to the next one see if you can see these benches yeah you can sort of see the benches on the far side and this side and they're not all there so i looked at a picture of people sitting on those stone benches you know on each side and i just counted the people and say well that's that, that's about a third or two-thirds, whatever, of what would have remained in it. And just sort of calculate, based on people filling those benches, 200 people in that synagogue could sit there just on the side benches. We call them benches, but they're stone steps. Okay, So it's not like today. It would be like if you guys were all the seats were on the side and the person speaking would be in the middle. Okay, A lot happens in this synagogue. So when Mark says that Jesus left the synagogue, immediately went to Peter's house, that's only 84 feet away. When he said immediately, he made pretty quick. It went a long walk from the synagogue to Peter's house. With Jairus, do you remember Jairus? He was sick. He was, he was the official of the synagogue. Okay, there was a demon-possessed man healed in that synagogue. The centurion that, that comes to Jesus, remember, and his slave is sick. And Jesus says, man, I, or the centurion says, man, I, I know how it is to command men. You just say the word and the guy's healed. That guy helped, donated money to the synagogue, it says. So this is the, why, why Capernaum? Because that's where Jesus was living. That's where several, that makes sense. We're going to find him. Let's go to his place. Knock on the door, ring the bell, see if he's there. So that's why he went to Capernaum, okay? I, I, sometimes visuals helps. I like to get this picture in my head. All right, of it uh, there as well. And I'll tell you what, if you saw from that first picture, that's beautiful beachfront property. You know what I'm saying? Um, and I'm not, I'm not saying by any means that Peter was rich. I don't mean that. But he wasn't living in a shack dump either. Okay? Um, and, and many people argue the sons of Debedee, okay, James and John, lived here as well. They do that from various textual things. I can't certainly stand on that. And, uh, but they perhaps live there as well. So it was, we know it was a center place for Jesus' ministry as he traveled in this little triangle space up there on the sea. Now, I know that's a bit teachy instead of preachy for Sunday mornings. Right? Wednesday nights, we'd go through this kind of stuff in more detail. But I just wanted to just set a picture in your mind. So when they show up there, they say, the crowd however many that is, say, Rabbi, teacher, okay, when did you get here? And I'm going to not got too many difficulty, whether that's in the aorist tense or in the perfect tense, because many of the manuscripts show the perfect tense. If it's in the purpose tense, it's more, well, how are you here? So it isn't just about time reference. How, how did you get here? Unless you walked all the way around during the night, which is possible. So, so they, they come and they ask, how did you get here? When did you get here? Whichever the case is. And Jesus doesn't say, well, I got here about uh, midnight and, and we came by boat. He doesn't do that. He begins with this, truly, truly. Okay? Instead of welcoming them, oh, nice that you're here. 
I'm glad you followed me over. It's nice that you came to church today, whatever term you want to use. He immediately calls into question their motive. He says, truly, truly, this is the truth, the absolute truth. I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate and were filled. Jesus puts the surely, surely on there to make sure are truly, truly, amen or amen. I surely, surely, it's not a person. It's just I remember it in King James. That's the way it is, okay? He, do, he doesn't want you to blow by that statement and just get moving down through the rest of the passage, okay? The rest of the story. He wants you to now, truly pay attention to this one. This is absolute truth. I know what you think about yourself, but I'm going to tell you what your real motive is. It reminds me in chapter 2. When the people in Jerusalem were then sort of trying to say they want to believe in him. And Jesus says this in chapter 2, 24 and 25. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them. Because he knew all people. He knew human nature. He didn't need anyone to testify him about mankind. For he knew mankind. He knows human nature. And he says to them, don't bypass this. Everybody, don't, they are not seeking me because they saw the sign. And it does say they saw the sign. It actually literally tells us in verse 14 of this chapter. And they saw the sign and said, truly, this is the prophet to come into the world, referring to the one would be like Moses. Out of Deuteronomy 18. Okay. He said, uh, yeah, yeah, you're not coming to me because you really believe in me. You come to me for what I can give you. In this particular place, physical food. Now, I know we walk down to, to the mini-mart at the corner or, or the grocery store and food comes pretty easy to us. But when you have to grow it, farm it, grind it, and so on, food becomes a much more precious. It's not everywhere. It's, it's not right down the street at the store. I mean, they had stores and they had people that sell bread, all right? But it's still not the same. A lot of people couldn't afford it. So he, he said, you're coming to me because you promised me I could be, uh, you believe I promised you or I could do for you. Is, I'll use this term we see today. Get your blessing. What you can get from him. That's why you're here. Because you thought you can get material blessings from me. Don't skip over that point. Jesus says, truly, truly, I want you to know this is your real heart is to what you can materially get from me. I don't, I don't think I need to go into that till you recognize that doctrine being preached, not just here in America, but around the world. That prosperity gospel that God wants to give you material blessing. Make sure you've got enough food to eat, a nice big house and a fancy car. Jesus is condemning that, okay? Because you ate the loaves and were filled. What filling is that? Natural, physical. You had this physical satisfaction, but it is selfish and fleshly. Then he, and he says, he, he makes the connection. Now he moves from this physical food to speaking about spiritual food. It reminds me when he met the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, okay? And they're talking to drink. He really wants a drink, but then he says, I can give you uh, for well the water that you'll never thirst again. And the lady goes, man, I want some of that. 
Again, seeking that physical. But Jesus is switching on the lady to a spiritual water. He moves here from the metaphor, uses the metaphor of food, into that of a spiritual context. Do not work for the food which perishes. So food could be here in this particular sense, anything in the natural realm that satisfies or fills the fleshly desire. But the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Jesus said something similar to this in chapter 4, after he has the encounter with the Samaritan woman and then uses water, they bring lunch back from the city, right? And they offer Jesus food, and he says, I have food you don't know of. And they're going, what? Okay, he, he, he talks about this, that his food is to do the will of him who sent Jesus. Okay, that shows up here right away. It, it's prevalent through the rest of the chapter. The will of the Father and the one whom he sent. He says that this nat- anything natural, the natural food, the natural things, it's temporary. It perishes. We, I think we all know that. If, if you don't believe me, uh, you know, just leave your garage alone. Don't get in there and don't clean it or do anything. Let's see how fast things fall apart. You know, I think we've all seen the old barn on the other side of town sits there, and what does it do? It just starts falling apart. It's a shame because it's a needle barn. There was a little chicken farm out there off Garrity. But you just, you just that's what happens. Things perish. Don't, don't, don't seek the things that perish, but th- seek the things that are eternal. Man should not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. See, th- that same food analogy, metaphor, uh, Jesus used, matter of fact, when he battles against Satan. It's not much of a battle in, in Christ's temptation. But notice this, this eternal food, the Son of Man will give you. Now again, the you is broad. It's not necessarily you particular, because he's now moved to food as this general idea of material things. And he's it is the Son of Man that will give you... Now, again, why does he use the term Son of Man? That reflects back to the Old Testament because he's going to talk about that manna from the Old Testament that came down from heaven. The people have already said he's that prophet talked about in that Old Testament in Deuteronomy. So he's, he's keeping that link alive as he moves forward in this little discourse that Jesus gives. Same thing Jesus says at the woman at the well. Whoever drinks the water I give, he's saying, I give this eternal food. Because he is the Son of Man. They've recognized that at this point, and we'll hopefully talk about that as well. Therefore they said to him, oh, I missed a part, that I'll give you, for on him, that is the Son of Man, the Father has set his seal. Stamp, approval, and we don't realize it this way. So if I came carrying a letter from the governor of the president with his seal on it, I am that pre- the president's, the governor's spokesperson. I represent them. So how you treat me when I show up with that seal, that stamp on it, is how you're treating the governor, the president. Okay, we don't necessarily have that today in the same way. But in those days, you did. If you offended, 
turned away. Let me put it this way. When you've done it unto the least of one of these, you've did it unto me. That kind of thinking, we don't think of it that way. All right. The best way I can think of it is um, I send my son or my daughters, either one of them, over to your house, too, and you treat them badly. They might brush it off. I'm not. Isn't that amazing? You know, if I went to your house and you mistreated me, I could live with that. But you retreat you know, my son, my daughter. Wait a minute. Okay? And you'll see Jesus later pronounce judgment on Capernaum because how they treated the son. He does the same thing in Jerusalem as well. Okay? So he's the one that's going to give it, and he's the, the sealed, stamped representative of God himself. Now, we know he claims to be God and equal with God because that's what they're trying to kill him previously. That's how they'll try to kill him later. I was talking to someone about a week ago, an, un, an unsaved person, and we were talking about this, and, and I was talking about Jesus being God, and they go, where did Jesus ever want to say he was God? So this allowed me to go there and say, look at that. Here's what he said. They even said that he was saying, claiming to be God. I didn't know that. And that person was raised in church. Okay. And here's their response. Okay. Now, this, this forever life-giving eternal food, the son who God has set his seal, the son of man, he's going to give this to you. They say this, what shall we do? Um, I'm sorry, were you listening? No, no, he will give it. The one, the one the seals on, the, the son of man, the son of God, the one who's made himself equal with God, he'll give it. Well, well what do we got to do? Man, that's a human response. It just is. All the way back in the garden, when Adam and Eve sinned, right? They realize they're naked and go, uh, I need to do something about this, so I think I'll cover it. Of course, God comes along and says, your covering don't work. Uh, let me give you one. All right. What shall we do? So that, here's the purpose of the doing. We may work, singular, the works, plural, of God. Uh, do you, I mean, let, me, let me write this again. What can you do to do God's work, a work that's God's. And the word here is in the genitive. And, and you go, oh, don't do that to me, Pat. Genitive means possessive. They're the works that belong to, that are God's work. What do you mean, what can you do? When did you become God? They're the works of God. What? I, I'm going to give this eternal life food. i got to give it. Not you, I will. Well, what can we do to do what God does? How did you make that leap? I think it's just human tendency. 